Why is there wholesale dissatisfaction in our society? Is the answer thinking the unthinkable? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we follow up our discussion of Kirby Farrell's interview on our culture's contradictions. We are going to share with you part of a presentation by Dr. Sheldon Solomon at the New York Society for Ethical Culture a few years ago. We edited the parts that are relevant to what we're talking about today. That's right. Here's Dr. Solomon. And there's Donald Trump. And and I say this from the point of view of his detractors, that most would say, well, you know, here's a vulgar, sadistic, vindictive, egomaniacal, misogynistic, racist, xenophobic, twittering, Mussolini, cheese doodle impersonator. And if you say, wow, uh, that's kind of harsh, uh, they would go on to say, yes, and moreover, uh, this is someone grotesquely ignorant, uh, who makes no pretense of being coherent, consistent, or even to make contact with what's true, and by virtue of all those things is unfit for public office. I want to emphasize that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's what his detractors would say. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's other folks that uh, they, they love Mr. Trump. They see him as a heroic change agent, a savvy deal-making businessman uh, who is unrestrained uh, by political correctness, unbeholden to special interests, and they're enthralled by his pledge to make America great again uh, by revitalizing the economy, by building a giant wall to secure the southern border, uh, by deporting 11 million undocumented immigrants, and by bombing the shit out of ISIS. I have something to say about Trump, but let's go on. I'll get to it. This is from Jean Lippman Blumen, a woman who I like. She's the co-founder of the Peter Drucker Institute. And she says, charismatic leaders have a way of appearing in times of great distress. They usually espouse a decidedly radical vision that promises to resolve the crisis. Crisis, by definition, is a period of great threat and uncertainty, a time when the existing leadership seems to falter. It is also a period in which the society's ordinary coping mechanisms are out of kilter. It is not then at all that surprising that a charismatic leader offering a solution, however radical, is particularly welcome in difficult times. Of course, one might even argue that in the turmoil and anxiety that keep company with crisis, anyone who confidently promises a solution is likely to be looked upon as charismatic. Followers' response to charismatic is a devotion born of distress. I understand what Gene Littman Blumen is saying, and I agree. We talked about Trump's election last episode. He's a good example of this charismatic leader she's talking about. And I personally don't blame anyone for voting for Trump in 2016. They weren't sure what they were getting, but they knew they didn't want Hillary Clinton, and they knew they didn't want more of the same. So they took a chance. However, after three and a half years of this man, it's time for a change. You can say that again. Sheldon went on to quote President Dwight Eisenhower, something that we believe bears repeating. Another factor in maintaining balance involves the element of time. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, 
Pondering for our ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow, we cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Down the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Can you imagine a Republican today talking about uh, we must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect? The, the reason I mention this is in part because I think what Eisenhower said is very profound and profoundly important. And to get back to where we started this evening, I think this is a big part of what the Ethical Culture Society is dedicated to, the Ernest Becker Foundation, and the Contemporary Heroism Initiative. That was Sheldon Solomon speaking at the New York Society for Ethical Culture. Steve, what's your response to that? Well, first of all, Eisenhower is the first president I remember. Mm -hmm. I remember his re-election in 1956. I'm an old fart. I wasn't born yet. Well, thank you for that. And my father, a Republican, and my mother, a Democrat, both voted for Dwight Eisenhower. My mother loved Ike. Today's Republicans and Democrats alike should take a look at what Eisenhower was about. I agree. We grew up respecting Republicans as honorable people who wanted what's best for America. But in my humble opinion, Ike would be horrified at what's become of the Republicans. These Republicans who are aiding and abetting a criminal in word, deed, and their cynical silence. I'm profoundly troubled by the divisions in our society today and our politics as well. Yeah, I said it last week, and I'll say it again. I love Kirby's notion about thinking the unthinkable. It means we have to get a handle on the deep information that powers our society, looking at the rules we live by that are not conscious. Right. That's an important idea. Now, I'd like to express some unthinkable thoughts myself. Stop me if I begin ranting. I'll try. Let's look at the recent news. Look at the unarmed African Americans who have been victims of violence. George Floyd was killed by police for allegedly attempting to pay for something with a $20 bill that was suspected to be counterfeit. We'll probably never know if it was, in fact, counterfeit. And if it was, did he even know it at the time? And it's a $20 bill. Yeah, give me a break. For heaven's sakes. Floyd was saying the exact same words as Eric Garner, who was killed by police for allegedly selling loose cigarettes a few years ago in New York. I can't breathe. Right. Which is now the name of this episode. Ahmed Arbery, he was killed for jogging, jogging in the wrong neighborhood, I suppose. One of his attackers was heard using a racial epithet. Breonna Taylor was killed by police in her own bed. Then there's this pickup truck that drives through Tallahassee protesters. This is a reminder of the, the Charlottesville murder of a, a protester in 2017. U.S. Representative Joyce Biatti, a grandmother and an African-American Democrat congresswoman from Ohio, got pepper sprayed by police during protests of the death of George Floyd in Columbus. She was attempting to mediate as a voice of reason between protesters and police. And the police were like, we don't need any mediation, you gray-haired grandmother U.S. representative, and pepper sprayed her. I'm characterizing them. In Buffalo, a police officer 
shoved a 75-year-old white man named Martin Gugino, who was a protester. He is a pacifist. The policeman knocked him to the sidewalk, whacking his head hard enough that he began bleeding from his ear. He was taken to the hospital and put in intensive care. The police report lied about the incident, saying he tripped until a video of the event was provided, and then they changed their story. President Trump invented an amazing lie, claiming that Gugino could be an Antifa provocateur. This is part of a dangerous smear campaign directed against the protesters that the president and state-aligned media like Fox News and OANN have, has been spreading. Robert Reich, who I really respect, wrote, So let me get this straight. Black Lives Matter protesters are tear-gassed for protesting the murder of George Floyd. But MAGA protesters, that's Make America Great Again, were left alone for bringing AR-15s inside state capitals. This is unbelievable, Steve. This is all quite disturbing. Yeah, I had stopped listening to news for a while. It was pandemic 24-7. Then all this started, and at first I was sad. Then I was outraged. Now I'm both. Yeah. Here's what I would like to tell the police and government officials involved in this violent response to the protests. Control is a seductive fantasy. Let me say it again in case you missed it the first time. Control is a seductive fantasy. The authorities want to maintain control because control of the world represents control of the uncontrollable like their own deaths, which, of course, is a fantasy. It's a symbolic immortality. Meanwhile, the other side is tired, well, no, outraged at being controlled. I don't think it's a coincidence that the police, who are willing to use force and violence to gain control of peaceful, law-abiding demonstrators, and the billionaire class that runs this country, all want the same things. The billionaires and the police want control, the illusion of control, the fantasy that one class can control and dominate the other. This is ultimately an immortality project. Understand? It's an immortality project. It's a fantasy, an illusion. And if you think curfews and cops in riot gear with military hardware is getting you control, you're totally wrong. You didn't control anything. You unleashed a pent-up, powerful wave of outrage. Talk about unintended consequences. Well, that's what we've got now. The phrase, defund the police, is not meant that money should be taken away to punish police or that we're better off with lawless chaos. The phrase, defund the police, is shorthand for reforming how we keep our society safe in the 21st century. Yeah. I listen to Fox News now and then, and they're apoplectic. It's going to be chaos. We're going to have rioting and crime everywhere. No, here's what's really being talked about. Reforming policing in this country, and I fully support it. Militarized armed police is un-American. At the same time, some people are analyzing what the police really do all day. And they're looking at many of the tasks assigned to armed law enforcers. And they're saying many police tasks should and can be assigned to psychologists, to drug counselors, marriage counselors, social workers, professionals who are trained to work with people who are suffering from mental illness or, or sexual assault victims, drug addicts, victims of domestic violence. Why do we have armed police officers involved with these issues? For example, the cops who killed what was probably an emotionally disturbed elderly black woman named Eleanor Bumpers. This is back in the 80s. 
They were trying to evict her from her public housing apartment. And they killed her. Take the guns out of these encounters and bring education and empathy to them instead. It's the 21st century. It's time we turned the clock forward and got away from this 19th century cowboy policing that we seem addicted to. The other part of this is that white supremacy is part of the American socialization process. We all share in it to some degree. We have to confront it in ourselves to end it in others and in our, in our institutions. That sounds right. And all this holier-than-thou stuff has to stop. And all this stuff about, oh, a couple of bad apples. This has got to stop because you've got to look at yourself and everybody around you and how you've been raised and how they've been raised. We've all been raised to be white supremacists, all the white people and even, even some of the black people. White supremacy is a worldview. It's not some bad activity that bad people do. It's a way of seeing the world that has to be addressed on a social psychological level. We have to look at our history, the history of colonialism, the history of slavery, the history of Jim Crow, the history of the, the new Jim Crow. This is what is baked into us in our socialization process, in our education process. We have to teach our kids the U.S. was founded on stolen land and is built on stolen labor from enslaved people. Today, we are paying for the sins of our fathers. That may contradict the Bible, but that's what this is about. The protests are more than just objection and disapproval. They're part of a movement that seeks equality for all Americans, for all humanity worldwide. That's why the protests are breaking out all around the world, by the way. It's because every society has inequality and discrimination against its minorities. Or it might be a whole country that's just tired of being discriminated against by the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, they're all responding to the George Floyd killing. Yep. As one activist said about the sporadic fires and looting... With the protests, she said the society broke the social contract with African Americans, yeah. and they are responding in kind, and that the majority, I assume she means the white majority, should be grateful that the protesters seek equality and not revenge. Amen to that. She was dynamic, but that's a scary thought. I wrote a blog in 2017 where I said, it seems that America has two main tribes. There are other tribes, of course, with a lot of overlap, but the two main ones that have the most power and influence present the greatest danger of tearing the country apart. Unlike the tribal conflicts in other countries today, our two 21st century tribes are spread across the nation. They're determined by race, religion, lifestyle, other factors, but not region like our Civil War in 1860. According to a major study conducted by NPR and others, majorities of Americans in many ethnic identity and racial groups believe that discrimination exists against their own group across many areas of people's daily lives. 55% of white Americans feel their group is discriminated against. 92% of African Americans believe that discrimination against black Americans exists. Yeah. African Americans who lived in urban areas were more likely to see racial discrimination as driven by institutional factors. Those in rural areas viewed individual bias as the source of discrimination. Two very different points of view depending on where African Americans live. But the same, the same net result. Yeah, with the same result, and we're looking at well over 90% 
of African Americans believing they, they're discriminated against. Right. So the question is, what is at the heart of tribalism? The way I understand the mind, how it works, is that it constructs mental models and either fits ideas and experiences into the models or rejects the ideas and experiences that don't fit. Now, your culture, Kirby compared it to a, a computer operating system. It's the source of your identity, your worldview, your understanding of how the world works. It's your opportunity for heroism, uh, the source of your self-esteem, and whatever immortality you seek, whether it's metaphysical, actual immortality, or symbolic, like the kind you get from our culture based on wealth, fame, power, beauty, for example. Mm -hmm. Most of us receive our tribe's position on an issue, collect data that supports that position, and decide that we have formed our opinion based on the facts, when in fact the opposite is true. Tribalism replaces rational thinking with reassuring feeling. At the same time, the human race is the descendant of tribal creatures that supported and protected their members. Xenophobia, fear of the other, is a survival instinct, for want of a better term, that protected our ancient ancestors from their most lethal danger, which was people from another tribe. Psychologically, we carry this instinct today, sometimes in fear of actual physical harm from the other tribe, but often in fear of their counter-worldview that challenges ours. Right. A challenge to your worldview weakens your defense against death anxiety. It's what Sheldon Solomon talked about in our second episode. Right. So our forms of heroism, self-esteem, and symbolic or metaphysical immortality are all threatened by the very existence of a counter-worldview, allowing the worldview to gain increasing power, to dominate, to push their values into the fore, is a threat to our psychological equilibrium. Well, I think that's right, Steve. I, I, I maintain that we should all try the time-honored debate exercise of making sure that you can argue the position of your opponent. If you can effectively argue the opposite tribe's opinion, uh, you've gone a long way towards finding some kind of common ground. Agreed. I think we have to find common ground. And I think to do it, we have to be aware of our own tribal rationalizations and rhetoric. Tribalism is thinking that has been prescribed by your group. The urban coastal tribe needs to understand that political correctness is an insulting phrase for the other group. It is. How can a reasonable counter-opinion be declared incorrect? However, that said, white supremacy goes beyond political incorrectness. It's at the heart of Nazism. It's at the heart of America's most unfortunate history, like the Ku Klux Klan. It's a dangerous maladjustment based on ancient and dangerous misunderstandings of humanity. So I don't think white supremacy has anything to do with correctness. Right. It's a destructive worldview that belongs in the dustbin of history. You're talking about things that there are two equally viable positions on an issue that could should be capable of being discussed and one side claims that theirs is the correct one and if you say anything other than that one you're incorrect as you say but in terms of political correctness yeah the term resistance is 
divisive. It implies that the 2016 election was a defeat by a foreign army, an occupying power rather than fellow Americans. I never liked the term resist. No. The urban clan needs to acknowledge the prospect that the pace of social change might have generated a recoil and counterattack among traditionalists. Sure. Understand that what's being described by you as hate may in fact be fear on the other person's part. Well, I think that's right. And I think it also sh- should be pointed out that there's probably fear on both sides in most of these very divisive issues. That's what I'm hearing between the lines. And the Heartland tribe and Trump voters, they need to embrace the fact of change. Yeah. I, I understand that change is frightening, but they have to understand that as the world gets smaller, clinging to one's tribe may have become more and more important psychologically, but less and less possible in reality. Yes, change can be frightening, but next to death and taxes, it's one of the surest certainties. It's very true. Thinking the unthinkable is hard for every individual, but we have to do it to keep from tearing our society apart. Agreed. It is extremely hard to step outside of your culture, to step outside of your tribe and give credence to the other. You, you have to, we, we all have to question where our ideas come from. It's not an easy process. It requires actually listening instead of filtering. Considering ideas that are deemed blasphemous by your peers and family. It requires dialoguing with the others whenever possible. It's not about converting others or defeating them in debates. This whole debate confrontation thing, that's that like CNN likes to have the, the debate. Let's put that aside. This should be about uniting people as best we can. I think that's true. And we, we also talked about the fear of social death. Uh, culture becomes depressive. It can be almost as terrifying as real death. Right. Social death is a very important idea. I maintain that fear of social death was the primary motivation for voting for Donald Trump in 2016. If you missed that conversation, you can go back to episode six. Avoiding social death is something only Trump seemed to understand on some level when he promised to end American carnage. Yeah, now he's talking about real carnage, not metaphoric carnage or social death. He tweeted recently, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And that's an invitation to wholesale murder. There are members of the National Guard who are openly questioning how and why they were deployed. They said they don't feel at all comfortable with what they were sent to do out there. Yeah, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. And Kirby also said that people are hungry for more than just food. And we're a lot of us are feeding ourselves, you know, to death. Right. Kirby is making a very important point that people are looking for meaning and purpose. He's making an analogy that we're hungry for meaning, using food as a metaphor, but more than a metaphor. It's a way we we comfort ourselves and, and reward ourselves. I like the suggestion that we need to teach people, in effect, how to love. Right. Teaching people how to love is not going to be easy when people are consumed with outrage. Yes. It's really hard now to think that we're going to teach millions of people to love when they're yeah. taking part in what we're calling a movement. We could call it a revolution. I should say it yeah. might be a revolution. We don't know. No. 
Some are calling it an uprising, which may be more accurate. But we do know that love has got to be part of the equation. Yeah. Otherwise, we're going to have a civil war. People have been talking about this for quite a while, but we're getting close to it now. Yeah. The idea that the President of the United States is planning to put the U.S. military into combat with American citizens goes against everything this Constitution is about. Yes, it does. Can you imagine open warfare in a city like Seattle? Yeah. It goes against everything our society is about. Yeah. This is extremely scary. People like Nancy Pelosi say, we have to pray. We have to pray for the president. We have to love the president. Well, I'm sorry. I have a little trouble with that. But we do have to love one another. Yeah. And if you're into prayer, pray for the other side. We have to understand the fear on the conservative side. Sure. That's what I hear when Fox News people go on and on about looting and burning in Antifa. When the Secret Service put Trump in a bunker like it was 9-11. Talk about fear. But fear turns to violence. And you understand how the media works. It's not just Fox. I shouldn't single them out. If you can just picture the news editors in a major news organization sitting around the conference table in the morning and saying, what's our lead story for today? Well, 50,000 peaceful protesters marched in Houston. Hmm, that's boring. What else you got? Oh, five people looted a CVS and stole some drugs. Let's go with that one. Right. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, that's what we got. Yeah. So we as a society, addicted to entertainment and rage-inducing headlines and sensationalism, it's become yet another news jamboree to go with the pandemic, the impeachment, uh, the Mueller report. It's just showbiz for them all day. Well, both sides have got their own uh, narrative that they're trying to fan the flames of. True. And neither one of them wants what we're calling love, wants people to come together. They want to win, and they want the other side, therefore, to lose. So, as you say, the right is fanning fear and look look at all what's going on, and this is going to be terrible if we don't get complete control over it. And the other side wants to keep people apart and at each other's throats. And when someone comes out and says, let's see if we can talk together, they get shouted down because the last thing they want is for people to talk together. It's all counter. It's all counterproductive, and it would seem to me a very opportune moment for an actual leader to emerge. But there doesn't seem to be any insight. Well, you're right, and the leaders are not obvious, but there are leaders. They're not getting attention as leaders necessarily, like Patrice Con Colors, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi. Yeah. They're the Black Lives Matter founders and leaders, but they're not getting much recognition. The fact that I may be mispronouncing their names is a pretty clear indication that I haven't heard them spoken. I haven't heard them talked about. There are voices in our society, but no one person has emerged. It's too early to say, but I'm afraid they're being marginalized. I'm not sure how we respond to people's fears. Revolutions are messy. The civil rights movement was complicated. Martin Luther King had embraced nonviolence, which I believe is why he accomplished what he did before he was murdered. It was a brilliant strategy, but that sort of guiding principle seems to be absent. Active nonviolence, in my opinion, 
will get far more in the long run and put conservative minds at ease. The post-Trump world is a scary place for millions of people. They have to be reassured that Black Lives Matter is not about revenge. It's about coming together. Right. It's about equality for everyone. And conservatives have to be reassured that Antifa is a scapegoat, yep. a boogeyman meant to scare them. It is not a real threat. Everyone has to understand that this movement, this uprising, is not going away. It's part of a whole set of issues that the next generation has to address as they take control of the world and they try to fix what's wrong with it. Black Lives Matter is like the Occupy movement. It's like the Parkland young adults who said enough is enough. We don't want your thoughts and prayers. Yeah. It's the Sunrise movement. These are all young people actions. Yep. And the old farts like you and me, yep. we have to get out of their way while they make a new world. What we tried to do 50 years ago make a social revolution with mixed results. Bigotry. Bigotry is one part of the equally important issues of economic inequality, violence and war, right. and the environment. And the other issue that must be addressed somehow is mental health. Right. But those are conversations for another day. I'm trying to end on a positive note and trying not to rant, but I, I've got to go back to talking about control because I, th I think that's the important issue here and the the response to the protests. The authorities are trying to control the situation with bullying, with riot gear, with helicopters and armored vehicles and military equipment and horses. I've been in a few protests in the past, not recently, but when the horses come out, it's really scary. Right. They're big. With a person sitting on top of them, they're like 10 or 11 feet in the air. It's it's unbelievable what that does to you. That's what it's designed to do to you. Well, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Control the situation with blunt force. Dominate, as Trump says. No, you know, that's, that's just, just... That's aggression. Right, aggression. And when you're, when you're in a crowd of 20-something-year-olds in a protest and things become threatening from the police, well, 20-somethings who believe they can't die become violent in response to the threat, and it ratchets up. Any psychologist can tell you that. Right. It's when what Kirby described me. He said, you walk into a bar and say, I've got a gun. And if I don't like what people are saying or doing here, I'll just kill them. Can you imagine the reaction of the bartender and the other patrons in the bar? It's not going to be, oh, well, why don't we just be kind to this gentleman? No. The violent attempt to control the protests yeah. by the police and the authorities yeah. needs to stop. Not good. They have to respect that the protesters are exercising their constitutional right of freedom of speech and assembly, the First Amendment rights. All of this curfew stuff and all of this penning people into confined spaces so that they're risking their health in this COVID pandemic. It's un-American. This has got to end. We've got to respect the protesters because they are, in fact, the future of the society. Well... And as we always end up saying, Steve, we're not going to solve all this today, but hopefully we've got some more stuff to think about. Anyway, that's the end of my rant. That's all right. And I, you know, I never stopped you from ranting. You didn't quite get to ranting. <laughs> you, were, you were flirting. You were flirting with it at times. <laughs> I tried not to rant. Well, listen, you're, I know you're very passionate about this stuff and I let you go. Thank you, sir. So Appreciate that. Join us. Join us next time. 
Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. Subscribe on your favorite platform. And support us on Patreon. We're 100% listener-supported. That's right. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Stay well.